Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host teacher and socialist Andy Lipson. And we're missing our Kenny Cepeda, very own Kenny Cepeda. But we have <laughs> uh, Jessica, who uh, is contributing to this episode today and who has also previously been on a separate episode where we interviewed her as an educator and her own experience um, given all that has happened and transpired uh, over the last year. And you can check out her link, the link to her episode and anything she wants to share in the episodes. So uh, we are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, uh, share your favorite episode, where you found this episode, and uh, and thank you. Yeah, and um, well, there's a few reasons this episode is special today. Um, number one, it's going to focus on Eduardo, um, and I want to share something here. This was my this was my surprise for y'all. Uh, hold on. You better not be playing back any cringy old episodes from YouTube. No, I don't want to see in my life ever. It's something else cringy you're not going to like. Oh, jeez, Here you go. Make it out of the way. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Happy birthday, Eduardo. Happy birthday. I didn't oh, know. I keep, yeah, well, I keep it on the right. I keep it on the down low. <laughs> <laughs> so today is Eduardo's birthday. Uh, yes, <laughs> and um, and that's we we record this on Wednesday. There you see, happy birthday to you! Thank you. Yeah, yeah. See, that was my special surprise for you. Um, well, thank you very much. I <laughs> I uh, I I get really awkward and weird when it comes to birthdays, when it comes to celebrations. Anything around me is not all right. It's forbidden. <laughs> and Andy, you should not have done that ever in your Everyone life. Everyone in the comment section, please <laughs> wish Eduardo a happy birthday. All right. <laughs> well, thank you. I so that's that was our first part of the plan, but thank you very much, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. And do tell Brandy, I, um, yeah, Andy's partner, for for the lovely uh, text message she sent me. I really do appreciate it. Shout out to Brandy. I know she listens to these episodes. So, Jessica, you're joining us on Eduardo's birthday. Very special day. Yes. Thank you. Um, now, when by the time folks see this, um, it won't be. We we record on Wednesday and put it up on Saturday. But I figured out, you know, everyone should know. Um, so the other thing is, is that Eduardo and I have been talking a lot about this year, mm-hmm. year and a half. And um, he's definitely noted, like, a number of changes political changes, particularly when we've looked at old episodes and remembered old ways of thinking. Um, it's actually changed all of us here, I think, uh, this last year. But um, Eduardo, I feel like, has had a lot of interesting observations to make about you know, ideological changes or political changes that have happened. And also, uh, he and I have gotten the chance to organize together. And I think through that organizing, not actually as much with me, but just through the organizing out in the world, I feel like a lot of interesting things, and Eduardo, you've made a lot of interesting observations about, again, how that has affected you. So um, I'm hoping we're going to use this episode as a chance to talk about that. Um, sure. And, yeah, I'd, oh, I'd, I'd be happy to share. Um, we've talked about doing an episode like this, um, yeah. which has been very significant. 
And, you know, Kenny was not able to be with us today. So I actually, I thought, Jessica, you would be the perfect person to join us, partly because uh, I actually think you and Eduardo have some political similarities, like kind of a bent towards anarchism and being an anarchist. And I think, Jessica, you more identify that as maybe Eduardo would, but I think that's really Eduardo's kind of political leanings. Um, and also, uh, you have gotten to know some of us, but you maybe don't quite know us enough. I just felt like having somebody who didn't know Eduardo as well would really add something to the questioning and the and questions that might come up um, in relationship to what Eduardo's going to talk about today. So I was I, when when you agreed, I was like, oh, this is really going to be interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here as part of this one. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica, for being here. Um, so Eduardo, I think I would say, let's start with, you know, what, what you would note as some political changes that have come for you. I could probably say some things, but probably it should start with you. Yeah. I, we, um, have been doing this episode now, excuse me, um, this channel um, slash podcast, because we also have it, invite people to check out the podcast if they don't want to watch this entire thing uh we have been doing this for the past three years now andy yep. and when we first started I, <laughs> that's i want to look back it's like ah it's like those youtubers that say they don't want to look back at, uh, or jessica shared at one point <laughs> you had your own channel this could be cut or edited or you can have this i don't care jessica you can but it's oh, funny how find it. it's still it's gone <laughs> oh i see <laughs> and people people see their best and i I see the stuff that I have said or I've just talked about in the past and and it's just through, you know, activism or it's through it's through the work that things start coming up and you start identifying what is really where do you stand on certain issues, right? When it comes to like for example gun control or if it comes to immigration or if it comes to in this case uh where do I stand as far as like um, with progressive liberal politics here that blanket San Francisco, right? It's just, um, so there's disagreements I have found. And so that has only come about through um, like on the ground work. So anyhow, uh, I guess where I, uh, the political changes or ideology I think that you're referring to, Andy, is all the stuff that we have been discussing in the past, what, year, um, since the pandemic and since since um well people can see the episodes that we have been talking quite controversial things and a lot of things have been taken down uh so yeah i don't i, I we could start somewhere i i don't mind where do you think that well where would i mean i guess what the things that come to mind for me are you kind of started this channel as a at self-identified liberal progressive. Um, and I also remember that things like, you know, definitely we'd have arguments about voting. I don't know where, where you stand on those sorts of things, but I also know the question of conspiracy theories and, and, and things like that, that were like, you know, these people shouldn't, shouldn't really be given a platform because they have some kooky ideas. And so those are some things. Uh, the way I would describe my politics before were, much more like Chomsky, who, um, if he 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 um, always talks about anarchism, and he says, and I ideally this is what I would um, 
before, right? He would be like a he's a syndicalist uh, and someone who is a leftist, libertarian, and and bent towards this. You had to bent towards anarchism, uh, but he votes and supports a lot of Democrats, and and that's because I think he's trying to organize the left and 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 trying to work within a, uh, a particular. Um, uh, framework that we are living in that, that right now we are living in this binary system. So that's how I identified before. I would say I still love Chomsky. I still think he's radical. I but I I don't see myself as I did three years ago where I would work with or I would see myself be just with Democrats. I was still operating under I have the separation between the right or a conservative right or right-wing or right-leaning um, uh, workers that I felt we could not work together before uh, because I, in my mind at that time, I thought they were not willing or not able to, um, they just, as workers, we were just going to have differences, very staunch differences like racism, no? And I just couldn't see myself working with someone that is potentially going to be harmful to the movement. And uh, and so I, I still have some qualms about that, um, but I have seen this past year how much uh, there are, uh, the left has given themselves up to um, um, the state on a silver platter, right? Um, which I didn't realize they were doing more so of a damage and to, to our work and to our movement on the left than a lot of conservatives. Because I think some of the thoughts or racist ideas or whatever from conservative workers are more, um, at, now I'm seeing it more as something that they are, uh, you know, for whatever many factors there are, there's ignorance, there's also not enough worker alliance. And there, there, if, if we were to work together, there's some of those stuff could be sorted out between us. And I don't see how we can sort out anything with rulers or strong, powerful capitalists that I think the left is, is trying to work with. They'll eventually screw you. They'll eventually... So I don't see how... I see, I see many progressives taking... Like they are... Um, they are really trying to work with the state. I see liberals, you know, giving our information out to the government, you know, being for, like, for example, immunity passports and being for, oh, you know, let's let's track everyone. Uh, let's, under the, the guise of the jabs, and I'm not going to say the, those very hot words because then we're going to be taken down, but, you know, jabs or anything with this sort of... Uh, <laughs> sign uh so um so i i do believe that you can never work i i would rather work with a conservative worker than work with the movement that is working with powerful forces that are eventually going to crush you i mean we see that with the kurds how they worked with the u.s with the usa and how eventually they were screwed uh so that's one of like maybe a terrible example, but there are many examples like that, right? Um, so that's what's been really bothering me this entire time that I've been seeing unions 
I've been seeing workers really giving themselves up uh, and Democrats are the ones fooling you because they're considered leftist. Uh, as I don't see them as leftists anymore, but there, there's, there are, they are the ones that um, are saviors. For example, Black Lives Matter movement, right, is co-opted by the Democrats. Um, the environmental movement, also, the Democrats say, "Well, we care about climate change. We'll do something about it," right? Well, they're still in cahoots with big corporations. So, I just, I just think that we're doing a disservice to our movement. And I don't want to work with those people. I don't, I don't want to work. I'd rather work with other conservatives or other people, but they're workers and we'll have to sort out our differences. We will have to sort out our differences, but I, I don't want to work with anyone anymore that is going to be. And that's the biggest change I think has happened for me. So I remember my time in Occupy, it was always going against the wealthy and it was about going against Wall Street and it was about going against the government. And I don't know what has happened, but the left has definitely shifted, and it's 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 okay with all the surveillance. It's all right with all of, you know. And, and I, you know, they criticize China, North Korea, everything, but, or, but I don't see how, I don't see how they 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 don't see themselves as this country as what well. you know we're be, we're allowing ourselves to be monitored. Uh, anyhow, I don't know where I'm taking mm -hmm. that. You know, that is just something I. It's been, I think the start of all of this has been because of COVID. Uh, there, I was very worried about COVID at first. And then, uh, you know, reports were coming out. I got COVID in January uh, in France uh, in a hostel. And I remember there was a French doctor that had come in, had warned us. He said, boys, everyone here, you know, there's, you're all too packed. You know, you have to get some fresh air, something happening. At that time, he said, like, stomach flu or other virus. And we didn't know what it was. I just went to the pharmacy to go pop some pills to just get over it because it was massive headaches and everything at that time. And, I mean, I survived. I Five days, I was had escalofrios, which is like chills and headache and vomiting. And But I survived it, and I, I didn't know what it was. And then I came back. And then they were shutting down everything. Uh, and now it's known, right, that the virus was in Europe around as early as September, October, somewhere around there. So, and then, um, so anyhow, so when that happened, I, I I did think back in March, I think there's this is serious. And I didn't think it was going to last. And I don't think anyone knew it was going to last for months and months and months, the shutdowns and the confinement. is. Um, so I remember we did an episode where I thought, you know, we have to be careful around this. We have to make sure <laughs> we have to be careful what we're saying because we have to educate people what's going on. And you and Kenny were very skeptical. And uh, and then slowly, as we were discussing vaccines, we were looking for stuff. We were getting stuff. It was just difficult to find information, difficult to look up stuff. and. Doctors were coming out. I remember European doctors that I, I, I remember uh, links that were sent to me by friends in Europe. They were sending me about stuff from COVID or stuff, and I would click the links, and the YouTube stuff was gone. It was their content was gone. I said these links are not working, and then 
you'd see all these videos slowly come down off of YouTube. It was massive. There was so much censorship at that time and slowly everything was coming down and we had to do an episode for vaccines and I thought I can't find anything and and that's how, when I thought this is so strange why don't they let people decide what I know it was all of a sudden world health threat right it was vaccine hesitancy or COVID uh COVID skepticism and all this and it was like what <laughs> Uh, at that time, I, though, I don't think it was vaccine hesitancy. It was um, something else. I, I don't remember. I think it was afterwards that it was vaccine hesitancy. But it was, uh, but it was just difficult. And that's when I I remember doing an episode with with Kenny and you, Andy. And I thought, uh, what? How I can't? I am not able to search for stuff, and I'm not very good at like understanding. And it was it was an episode about vaccines that we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't find anything on online. Mm -mm. Well, there was stuff, but I, I mean, it was not, it wasn't giving alternative points. It wasn't anything I could find that like to give maybe people and I have like, well, well, these are the issues that we could potentially run into. And also I, everyone was, you know, just saying, well, as soon as it comes out, we should all take it. And I was thinking, what about doctors who are skeptical? You know, they were talking about herd immunity and they started shutting, they took down a bunch of doctors who were talking about how herd immunity works. And I feel like we've already delved right into this smack, right into the vaccine stuff. And I don't want to go there it's so fast, but I, I want to say like, I respect anyone who once I don't judge anybody. I'm just saying that I think for those people who believe in in information to be accessible and making your own choice, I think it's very important that anything is the internet is supposed to be this worldwide web of lots of information. I mean, back when the internet was discussed, it was discussed as this finally this equalizer of information that was supposed to be available to everybody, you know? And now it's 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 this um it's becoming this thing about like well we have to now get rid of uh disinformation not misinformation disinformation i think it's so you have you went you had a lot of things to cover there eduardo just yeah, because, is there no, <laughs> um is there some places that you want to ask some questions here because i think i'll let you do that for a while uh if you want sure. Yeah, no, there's, gosh, there's like a lot, a lot we could pick up on that you covered there. I wanted to maybe go back to something you said when you were talking about the left and kind of your own journey. And I think at one point you said, you know, that the left isn't what it used to be anymore or something has changed somewhere along the way. And I feel like there are, like Andy said at the beginning, like I definitely see um, a few similarities in terms of our, our political journeys. Like I was in New York during Occupy. That was a huge kind of radicalizing mo moment for me. And, um, you know, I think a, a lot of us feel in various respects, like we're kind of like just catching up right now during all this COVID stuff, like uh, looking back and thinking, oh, maybe I was a little, little naive and in, in <laughs> I was looking at things. At least that's how I have felt. Um, I still feel like I'm playing catch up in terms of my, my politics and, you know, just the, the histories that I've learned. But I was curious if you 
if you have any sense of sort of a when and how that shift occurred, because I, I mean, obviously COVID has brought so much of it into a very stark light and it's woken up a lot of people, but you know, a lot of this was going on before, like long before. So I'm curious if you have a sense either in terms of your own political journey or just like broadly speaking, or, you know, has the left kind of always to some extent been this way? And it's just that, you know, maybe um before the sort of internet age, maybe it was a different environment or, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious how you sort of track track that history and like how, how we even define the left? Well, I think the left sees itself. Please stop me and interrupt me. I'm all right with being interrupted if you think I'm not answering the question. Uh, I think the left sees itself as morally superior, you know, than, and then than the right or conservative workers or uh and so i think the left has one thing i remember discussing with andy is that in our private conversations andy is something about the left is that the left tends to see themselves as like right they are correct this is academically correct this is the way to do it this is there's something about this superiority that that i don't see on the right it's it's strange i don't know how to describe it but it is morally correct ethically correct we are the better people and you see it in the language that is often used but even like the most recent politics by hillary clinton when he when she said um um the the deplorables no it's it's very condescending very patronizing it's it's you don't know we will teach you and it's very hard not to get i have to admit for myself that i got caught up in that and it's hard for me to to it was hard for me before to distinguish how much of that I have embedded into my life, you know, especially when you and we, you two are doctor, you you have your doctorate, right, Jessica? You both are doctorate. You both are um, PhDs. Uh, I don't have a PhD, but uh, but you know, both of you know quite well how it is in academia circles or academia um, culture, academic culture, and I'm I'm not I don't have a PhD, but I consider myself to be fairly well read. I love reading. I'm part of four book clubs and you know I I've I've studied a lot and and I've also on my own like I genuinely love studying and reading and learning and I speak or I, I not speak as one of the languages you don't speak. I I have four languages on my, under my belt. Like I do love learning and growth and 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 when you are in this in that world, especially when you are in in um you know tied to the, the the liberal progressive democrat politics when you are only hanging out like in an echo chamber especially on social media platforms 
where you are just talking about this and you're criticizing and you're putting down and you say the most ignorant, stupid people are the racist people. You know, you, you, there, there is a superiority that, that you, you, that you fall into, unfortunately. And I know when I was going to school, the way that I, I was bullied uh, for many reasons, because of my identity, because I was also a Jehovah's Witness, etc. And also that's another layer to it. I did think that us as Jehovah's Witnesses, we were the ones that are going to be saved and everyone else is damned. And so it's like another layer to how in how better we think we are, no? And uh, so that's the first thing I'll say about the left. Now, speaking on a personal level, I I, I had a hard time changing my politics because the politics that I had, it's like a religion. When I left my Jehovah's Witness uh, religion, I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. I was reading literature, you know, on many things. And I was reading uh, forbidden literature as Jehovah's Witnesses. You're not allowed to read things that are not part of the Christ that Christian sect. And so I was reading stuff um, by Dr. Cornel West, or I was reading anything by, um, you know, just anarchist uh, readings or things on how we need to change the world. And, and just like even some of the stuff, like occult stuff, I remember. But when I was reading that, I, there was a transition I was leaving because I think I knew by the time I was 14 when I got reproved, which is this punishment they give you that I was I don't know I wasn't going to be in this religion for very long so as I was transitioning out I needed to find my niche I needed to find another thing to jump into and I jumped into leftist politics and that was like a second religion to me I didn't know it was a second religion to me at the time now I can see it has been but it's my my second religion and so I I saw it as the most the most the next thing I could do because because it was, well, why wouldn't I be a part of that, right? I, of course, I'm for women's rights. Of course, I'm for uh, gender and sexual diverse communities' rights. Of course, I'm for um, uh, making sure that we end the war on drugs and legalization of drugs. And of course, I'm for sex workers' rights. And of course, I'm for uh, open borders. But, 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 uh, but I, I didn't see that on the. I didn't see it on the right. And I also went to school here in San Francisco. I studied here and in Mexico. It's like, so you have this. You're just engulfed in leftist politics. So, I think what happened in my, in my transition, I immediately needed community, and that I found it in campaigning. I found it in Occupy. I found it in uh, supporting progressive candidates that were speaking the language of, you know right for workers and right for you the uh, making sure that unions were uplifted and making sure that women's rights were also protected and making sure that you know diverse sexual gender and um orientations were also being considered and the identity politics that i was slowly beginning to slowly beginning to you know just um what do you call it um just slowly beginning to adopt without knowing that i was doing that and so that's how I think that that happened. So my transition from being a Jehovah's Witness to adopting leftist politics, that has been my identity for the past one since I left. And that was what for the past decade. And that's it. That was it. So I, I followed strictly 
this is what I'm listening to, these podcasts I'm going to listen to, and I'm religiously going to listen to Democracy Now!, and I'm religiously going to listen to uh, KPFA, and I'm religiously going to read these books, and I'm religiously going to do... And that was because I have those habits. Like, you, when you're a Jehovah's Witness, you study, you read, you answer, you defend, you preach, right? When you're knocking, you debate. And I did that, but now with leftist, leftist politics. And anytime a friend or someone would say something what I considered ignorant or stupid, I, I would say then, oh, you don't know, you stupid, ignorant, like in my head, right? And they're not radical enough. They don't know. They're part of the mainstream. They're, you know, a racist. And that's all. I mean, that's how you get <laughs> yourself <laughs> involved. And then you become a part of a, like I became part of like a lot of progressive candidates here in San Francisco. And you get yourself involved in, you know, organizing phone calls. And, and then I was interpreting for candidates I'm not going to mention here. And, and, and you make all of this effort. And, and I was for like the propositions against GMOs. And then you, so you become so embedded in this world. And, and so what happens is you, you, you become a little tribalistic. Because I remember there were other people who would be voted for, and I said we're against them, and they don't know what they're they don't they're not progressive enough, you know. And you see it clearly with like Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, just for people who want recent history, when Bernie Sanders was like saying, "I am progressive, a real progressive." That's not progressive, and that's the change that people were seeing. Like, oh, we have to start being more pro progressive, more leftist, and right and. And we, we're, we're a generation um, that we're leaving at, at when I identified as part of, you know, being able to vote for Democrats and such, a generation that we're leaving the Hillary Clintons of that time, the Joe Biden's way of thinking, the all of that left. What I think really cemented or what started making people be more tribalistic was when Trump was uh, elected. I think it was a clear divide. I know people who, at, before Trump, were able to vote for Republican or Democrats. So Trump really set the division. Like It was like, we're going to have to be this tribalistic way of, of thinking, I think. And I, I, everyone started skirting this way, and everyone went this way. And I think I, I thought, well, of course, we're going to go this way as well. I'm going this way with them. Uh, and I was very, um, I had a lot of debates when, with my particular friend, Jake, who has been on this show, who, uh, became, be, be, he's, he became, uh, more conservative and I became more, we just, we both voted for Bernie Sanders, but we both at the time now we're beginning to separate our ideology on certain things like identity politics. And I think that's where I began questioning some things. And Andy and I had cafe conversations. And those cafe conversations sort of led us to understand, like it helped me a lot, sort of understand and process what's happening in society. And I, I realized maybe I'm not necessarily wanting to be part of the hate Trump train uh, completely. There are some things I do need to examine. So that's when I, I mean, yeah, I, I think there was a shift. I, I knew that 
that that I I was anti-Trump, but I didn't want to be just hate, 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 hate Trump because I feel like he was also a distraction from larger issues. There were other things going on and everyone was just jumping on that train. Do you now, like in 2021, do you think that elections specifically are are an effective like an effective means of creating change. Yeah, probably you guys have talked about this. Like, no, we haven't, haven't discussed this recently. Is that somewhere we should be like devoting some of our energy, any of our energy? And, and I'm saying this as somebody who campaigned for Obama the first time, campaigned for Bernie yeah. twice. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say twice. Yeah. Um, the first time, you know, okay. But the second time... I'm I'm a little embarrassed to say I fell for it again. <laughs> yeah. Um I it's a hard question. I I I I'm I'm watching I'm maybe it's a good thing Biden was elected. For me, I'm not saying whether it was good or bad like for the world. I'm just saying for me like understanding that what I'm seeing right now is such as right now they're trying to use COVID as an excuse to be able to surveillance us and use our phones. And this is under a Democrat administration. Uh, it's worse than that, I think, is, you know, this is taking us to a very bleak future. And I don't see Biden really being radical as people want to say as different than Trump as people want to think he is. And I know I've said in previous episodes that they are one and the same before, but that is more intellectual. Now that we are really, we are months in, I don't think that there will be these drastic changes that people expect from Biden. And I've seen Facebook posts from very beloved friends of mine who say this is the best president we have had and i know why they said that because it's becoming very much like a team everyone is you either go for mexico brazil or for you know france or italy it's everyone's becoming like this sports game it's of course you're going to rally for your team even if your team sucks <laughs> so the dem you know people who have identified themselves as democrats they are going to see biden in not such a harsh light, they're not going to. And I have had discussions with my friends and they'll say, well, what do you expect us to do? Vote for Trump or what do you want Trump to win? I, I didn't say I want Trump to win. Why, why does it automatically, I like, want Trump to win? But you're not even criticizing Biden. We, we like right now we are having Assange, like Julian Assange right now is being, is being tried and they're trying to extradite, extra, is it extradite the word? Yeah. To yeah. here to the USA. And, you know, this is under the, like, no, the Espionage Act. They're really trying to do things under this administration. I don't see how people, like, I, I, that's why I'm, see, I'm realizing more and more, and I've said in previous episodes that maybe not federally I, I would vote, but I personally don't see my vote that effective for and I have some questions about local, but I'll, but I'll go with like national elections. I I do not see how I could be that effective. I just don't see it. 
I don't see one thing that I was afraid during Trump administration was all this movement, right? We saw the ACLU get increase of donations. We saw Planned Parenthood being lifted, right? And I and I would support, I would say even now, I still support, like I have this very thin, like very thin connection to them because I'm still a member. And I, I it's not like I get stuff in the mail because I've been donating for ages. And even when I'm like, scrap scraping coins and looking for coins in my sofa you know I, I still can't like donate like I used to hundreds now like now I'm not as <laughs> I'm not working like I used to so I'm donating ten dollars here and ten and so when it comes I still have this connection where I do donate something because I obviously want champion women's rights but I don't see them as like the saviors I don't think I think NGOs are the saviors of our time so back to this thing with Trump, I, my fear, that was, I wanted to say, under the Trump administration, we saw this movement, right? People were at the Women's March. I mean, it was massive. And that was in January, right? It was like a big, optically, it showed how there was this opposition, right? And people were calling Trump fascist and there were all this. But then once Biden, right? I was afraid that once Biden gets under uh, elected, the the increase of of movement or activism or all of these websites that were posting we have to fight and resist and all those wonderful things suddenly like they're just it doesn't because biden is supposed to be better of the two evils suddenly there is like decline in in movement we're not criticizing we're not aware i'd like to see that resistance but that doesn't you see so the Democrats do have a very good strategy, very good strategy of, of, of tricking you, of, of lying to you, of gaslighting you, of telling you, we are here to save you. We're going to take care of climate change. We're going to protect women's rights. We're going to do this for workers. But I, I don't see how I'm being protected when they're trying to surveillance me and enter my, enter my phones. I don't see how we cannot, any of us speak. I think that this episode is going to come down. You know, we're we're not going to have any we're not going to have moments of of radicalism if they, they don't want, you know. So to answer your question, which is a very long response, and I hope we can edit all of this, is uh I don't think, excuse me, I don't think voting is effective. I don't think voting is effective. Locally, I have disagreements with Kenny and Landy who have stated their position publicly, for example. There are there are local uh, uh, things that I would vote for. For example, there was this this money this this money that was going to go into sort of protecting certain uh, um, wildlife restoration uh, um, areas in here in the Bay, and they need this money to be able to fund and protect uh, this this reservation. Uh, and Andy and Kenny have a position of like, no voting does not matter, just completely doesn't matter. Yes or not, Andy? Is that your position still? Yeah, I don't want to speak for you. Okay. So I don't, yeah, I just want to state it just to be clear. And I don't think I don't think that we should give up our vote if it comes to things like that. Because if we're going to have a, and I will state it just for the record, if we're going to have any 
revolution. If we're going to have any movement that is going to, what are we fighting for if we don't put some buffer or some protection to at least take care of our natural, uh, beautiful environment or our waters or take care of our climate in some mediocre, minimal way? I know it's very little, and I know that that's what Andy and Kenny just we disagree with, but I do believe there are these buffers of pushing back, like holding back the walls that are coming in and, and trying to destroy everything. And I'm like, well, if we just vote for this, we just let the revolution come and we'll just hold these things back before capitalism destroys everything. Otherwise I won't feel inspired to join your movement because <laughs> we have nothing. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to be fighting for a desert. <laughs> I don't I hope so so I do think that these buffers of voting for local um elections uh to protect our environment to sort of safeguard some of the you know like the clinics that women need to like there's I think one clinic in a particular state um, that's unfair like I do think that you should be able to vote for some person that's going to be like you know what I'm going not going to allow for this clinic to get shut down. It's easy for a lot of people to say, well, you know, your voting doesn't match it, but to a lot of people who don't have the resources, that one mm -hmm. clinic is the one place that they can go and travel to to get an abortion, mm -hmm. you know? So I, 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 I have this conflict inside where I do think some voting matters and some voting doesn't, I don't. Um, I don't know if that answers the question, Jessica, I apologize. Yeah, no, it's good, it's good. Maybe then Eduardo, if I was to summarize that is to say that while you still hold on the idea that voting locally could hold something back. I think you used to also believe that there was a holding back of things when you voted nationally. And it seems like you've, you've, you've lost that idea that you've seen not just in your head, but in your heart that lesser evil politics, at least on a national level, actually don't lead to a lesser evil. They, they produce a greater evil, not just yeah. a greater evil politically, but a greater evil in the, in, in workers where we don't fight, and we get we get worse things coming our way because people who say they're doing something good to us do something worse and we don't fight it. Yeah. I fear I fear that. I I so just yes, yes, Andy, to answer your question, yeah, I do believe that. Um that doesn't like I won't campaign anymore as I used to, but I will still like in the last election for for president, I still voted for Gloria Larriva which is a socialist candidate who I knew was not going to win. 30 party candidates are just here in this country. I don't know, in my country, you can do that. In the UK, you can do that. In France, you can do that. But this country, you could just never vote for a third party candidate and win. So I, I just voted and I didn't campaign. I told people what my vote was. I posted a Facebook and I said, here's who I'm voting for. This is my reasons why. And I can argue and debate, but it's more of a initiation of discussion. It's not so much more of like, I'm trying to convince people and get all of the, like I used to be so involved in making phone calls and, and getting people to vote and don't waste their votes. And I'm not doing that anymore, but I still vote. I want to be clear. I still vote, uh, but my energy and my trust or my confidence or my fealty, fealty is a word, fealty. You're an English teacher. Yeah, no, that's right. Fealty. Okay, good. Or fidelity. I think you mean fealty, though, right? Fealty, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> fidelity. Uh, fealty or my... I'm just not pouring into it anymore like I used to. Um, Jessica, what about you on voting? I guess, I mean, it's funny because my reason for no longer 
wanting to participate in that system is also kind of the natural world. That's where it's kind of anchored for me as more of an environmentalist. Um, but I guess I, I hear what you're saying about sort of wanting to hold the walls to the extent possible, even if it's just like, whatever, one butterfly or, you know, one dam. Um, and I feel that pull sometimes too, still in terms of local politics. But I guess I just, especially in, in light of the last year, I mean, I just think the faster we can blow up the walls, like the better, you know, like I think it, it is, it's voting is, it's part of like upholding a system that ultimately doesn't serve me and, and definitely doesn't serve the natural world or workers. And so, I mean, this is like a relatively very, very new um, kind of uh, persuasion. Like I said, I mean, even just like, a, you know, early 2020, I was campaigning for Bernie for a second time. And I mean, yeah, in the general, I, that was the last vote I cast, which everybody told me you got to vote for the lesser evil. You got to vote for the lesser evil. So I naturally voted for the Green Party, <laughs> which I saw <laughs> as the lesser evil. Like, at, yeah, least, yeah, yeah. at least they're anti-war. Um, but that was kind of it for me. Like, it was just, that was it for me. And yeah. 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 Um, Eduardo, I, I think the only areas in terms of politics I was going to ask you about are in that area. We, we can either stay in this political area or we can kind of go to the organizing. Um, but I think the area of like censorship, you know, we, we, two big discussions we ended up having in past episodes was like the debate about getting Infowars off, you know, the air and getting, you know, getting them off mm -hmm. YouTube. And then the dis discussion we had about conspiracy theorists, like, particularly flat earthers, you know, where you were like, I was like, no, flat earthers are my people, you know? And you were like, these people are, you know, that really got problems and should not be given a platform and we don't want them here, you know, kind of thing. And I wonder that those are areas that, well, you, you decide whether you want to say about that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that comes, if I look back at that cringy episode, <laughs> Jeffrey, Epstein, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein, I keep being corrected by um, some people. Uh, um, I, again, I was referring, you know, when I talked, I said earlier that, you know, there is this, there is this culture that exists in, on the left about being superior or thinking you're right, right? I, I think that, um, right, where this side of, of, the political spectrum believes in science and this side of this political spectrum believes in truth and fact finding and this side of the political spectrum prides itself and you know i have this statistic and i have this research to back it up you know and and i'll show you no <laughs> and so when you have when you have people who believe in the flat earth theory or you have people who believe in this aluminium that you have here, or you have people, and it just undermines that a bit. It just makes people feel as if, oh Jesus, your way of thinking is 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 not actually going. It 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 cannot be proven. It's like people who believe in God, no. And I I I think there was this also detest detestation detestation like this, I'm not gonna like this because I was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. So I I have been I've been lied to 
and was brainwashed into thinking that there were 144,000 people are just going to go to heaven and you're going to have Amrigeven, and then you're going to go to a paradise, and you have to save as many people, and you have to believe in all these mythological creatures that exist from the prophecy of Daniel and Isaiah, and, and from Revelation, the book of Revelation, which was written by John, and who had all these visions, and Daniel, who had all these visions, and so you believe in these myths, and you're just like, as I was reading more and more, I, I wanted to free myself from all of that, no? So for us, Andy, to suddenly, at that time, you wanted to have them as an invitation to our our show. I, I was thinking, are you, are you crazy? Are you mad? Why are you inviting these people? I don't want them to be a part of my life. I don't want them to be a part of this show. I ran away from all of that. And you're trying to bring that back into my life. I, I You have no idea how much, how the chains of brainwashing I had to do undo and the fear of God and, and, and all of these things I had to undo in my psyche. And you wanted to bring in these people. And so I had a difficult time trying to understand what you're trying to say as it relates to politically, what significance this means to us as workers. And we were just going back and forth and there was no understanding and people can look back at that episode if they wish. But even Andy was trying to pin me down to be like in cahoots with the FBI. And I said, <laughs> mad? I have no interest in, in being with the FBI. <laughs> you have to choose flat earth or FBI. You have to choose. And I was just, <laughs> so I was trying to, right? Now I'm seeing it that way. But at the time, I think I don't want to be with FBI. And I don't want to be with the flat earthers. Like, I don't want, like, you believe in the, the octopus that belongs under the bed or whatever. <laughs> so to your question though, let, let's get back. So, so I, you know, Alex Jones, you know, Fox news, all of that. And the documentary on Foxed out and all of the stuff you watch right on YouTube and all the leftist stuff that you see and, how much they're criticized and how stupid and and Trump doesn't help, you know, because Trump is such the way he talks is so it's just dumb the way he talks. You no, know? he just talks the way he's just like, and you know, he's like, I'm the richest, I'm the least racist, <laughs> and all this stuff. And so obviously it's like you want to be away from this narcissist. <laughs> how would you then work with the workers who voted for someone like that? You know. It's almost undermining who you are, everything you've worked hard to be, this wonderful, well-educated, well-read person, and suddenly I'm going to be working with these people. <laughs> I don't want to work with these people. <laughs> and so it still hurts. It's things like, <laughs> I have to go and work with these people now, you know, who voted for this loony person. Uh, and so... Yeah, I, I didn't want to be associated to that. And so, of course, I, I had a hard time listening. You know, I don't want Alex Jones to be a part of the conversation. I don't take him seriously. Now, let's discuss how I suddenly saw, and thanks to writers and journalists like Len Greenwald, I will say, you know, and thanks to, to also just the conversations that were very confronting on the show to be able to understand what, where we were being lied to, like Russiagate, right? 
where Glenn Greenwald was constantly saying, you know, this is a lot, this is a lot like the conspiracies that we're criticizing on the right. People pay attention. And people were tying Trump to, to this conspiracy that he he collusion with the Russians and and to this day, people still believe that. And I and I can see even with all the different things that uh, he had, there were some conflicts of interest. I do believe that there were some conflicts of interest in business. But to have this collusion, the way the Democrats were already conspiring, that, you know, there were many factors into the reasons why Hillary lost the election. But I'm not going to talk about that right now. But people can look at Glenn Greenwald. He does a wonderful breakdown. He He's... And and even him, he has changed as well on on his the way he talks. It, I, it'd be so much easier to isolate myself in echo chambers where everybody applauds me. You know, I've always tried to. The reason I started writing was because I wanted to bring attention to things that I thought the media was ignoring, not that the media was already covering. Yes. I assume that my readers already know all the reasons why Trump is horrible. I've written negatively about Trump before. I just don't think it's a valuable use of my time or platform to just go around repeating what CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times op-ed page are all already saying. What good does that do other than win me applause? I want to bring attention to some of the kind of unseen trends that I think are really disturbing that my readers would benefit from rather than just having their views reinforced. And I think that's why I built up a loyal audience over the years. I realized then, too, by watching Democracy Now! and paying more attention to how they always have people, Democrats, on their show, and they're constantly having them you know, lift, uplifting their voices or having them on their platform. And they don't take a lot of, they don't consider other stuff. Like you had shared with me, um, Andy, how Carl Sagan's wife uh, had looked into the 9-11 um, um, reports. And I looked up some of the stuff that after our conversation today, I looked up some of the stuff and she don't remember her exact words, but she said, everything must be examined. Everything is up for consideration. Everything is up for, for, to evaluate. That's what you do as a scientist. That's what you're supposed to do. And even if it seems wacky or you- Science, science is the whole methodology of science is saying that we are not permitted these absolute truths that religion pretends to have, that we do not know the answer to these questions. And not only that, but the little that we think we do know, if you can prove us wrong, we'll give you our highest reward. And that's part of the methodology. That's part of the whole functioning of the system itself. So yes, in answer to what Joan was saying earlier, scientists do terrible things. Scientists have biases. Religious people do terrible things, and they have biases. absolutely intrinsic to the whole scientific methodology of science is that error correcting mechanism which says we must never lose sight of that you know even with like now with the uh, ufos right um i was listening to something a, a special on kpfa where this reporter admitted telling this other journalist i didn't ever have you on my show when you were warning us about ufos 
because it was such a taboo subject. And now that, that the Pentagon has come out with it and everything, like I, I'm now able to have you on the show. And-, uh, and I think there's also just this, there's a stigma where, you know, it's just been considered for decades and decades to be something ridiculous. And people don't want to talk about something that's going to look make them look ridiculous and it might even damage their careers. So there's yeah. so many factors that have kept this under wraps. She was, she took it well. She said, you know, a lot of people, poor her, I wish I, I'll give the link. It's a great episode that I listened to. And she was, I'm sure she was, I think about so many journalists now who it's hard to maintain a position to be able to stick to it and and still be criticized and be seen as a as a, a mad person, as someone who is a whack job. Someone is, you know, that it's because... The mainstream is so powerful, so strong. You can't go against this narrative. And that's what happened last year, right? I, 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 I realized that, that, that that's my own journey as I began seeing that with COVID, there were things that, yes, the virus is real, but like the Wuhan lab theory immediately shut down, right? But then reports started to merge, and now all of a sudden, YouTube is allowing the discussion of the Wuhan lab. It gets on and off, on and off, but only who says that? Who is the one controlling that? Now we can discuss it. Like this YouTube episode won't be shut down because of this, because now people are able to talk about it, even because Fauci all of a sudden has touched on it and said, well, we have to look into it further. But before, everyone was on the same agreement that we should not discuss this subject at all. It did not come from a Wuhan lab, and it was said like in stone. And I began seeing then last year and over this, what I call COVID journey, that there are a lot of things that we have to look at and people are not willing to look at because they buy into it so quickly. They say, no, COVID requires confinement. It kills, it's, it's all of these things that it says we, we, we're, where it does. But then, you know, I began to feel with the, this is, I think, where it was, this is where I really felt where, and anyone can interrupt me to ask me about this, but this is where I think I began shifting my position around COVID was when I began seeing how kids, because I, my heart, you know, it just my nephew and also having raised kid myself and, and then also seeing how my community was struggling during this time. <laughs> Um, oh God. Um, I think the the shutting down <clears throat> I think what shifted for me was when schools began shutting down and and I began seeing how my Latino community and the kids that I'm connected with, having worked 15 years as an educator in the school district and San Francisco Unified School District, I think for me, being in connection with kids that I've now grown up and who are now adolescents uh, contacted me. Contacting me on Facebook 
and asking me if they can hang out or if they can meet me up or telling me they're bored um, or sharing with me <clears throat> their struggles at home. Seeing kids being confined at home was breaking point for me to change my opinion about COVID. Initially when confinement, the confinement started, it was sort of a benefit for me as an educator. I had a lot of time, one-on-one -on -one time to be able to educate my nephew. And he began reading at age five. And so there was a lot of work that I did with him, enrichment and, you know, my partner does music, taught him piano, he can play Beethoven really well at age five, six, there are videos of him I shared with Andy um, where he's playing Beethoven and he's Ode to Joy and his favorite uh, Moonlight. And, and, and this, this is wonderful pieces that he could play. And there was a lot of time that we dedicated to him during the confinement. I took advantage of making sure we went on a lot of bike rides. Um, and my brother as well took him out. And we did everything possible to make sure that he wouldn't be indoors. We didn't let the confinement stopped us. But when I began um, getting messages from adolescents about their experience or being in communication with the families that my nephew's preschool uh, um, school, what they were, their struggles in Sunnydale, and you know, Andy, where Sunnydale is, right? It's yeah. one of the most um, low income and hard hit. <clears throat> that's where we wanted to put our, my nephew there. And so the families that we kept in touch with when in March, they were updating us and, you know, we were, we were in communication, but because of COVID, everyone was afraid to meet up, but they would share things with us in group messages about what are you all doing or how do we, what do we do at home? Or, you know, Sometimes the very kids themselves would message in a group message. You have a five, six-year-old messaging us, like you know they're playing with their phones. They're really apt, adept to the to the technology, and so it was strange. And and then as I communicated with the mission families uh, that I know of, their struggles were sort of not being highlighted. I felt, and so I thought, what? what can we do to try to reopen schools? Because or at that time it wasn't reopened. This was at the very end of summer. And when we were going to enter schools, we did episodes uh, and anyone can look at those episodes in the links below. And we did an episode that was about technology and how that was going to affect our students because we had already seen how virtual learning was done in the last what weeks of school in 2020. I I know that I, I started discussing it with more people thinking everyone would be in agreement about this. My friends would be in agreement about this, how this is detrimental. I started sharing the episode with people. I discussed it. I, I had a position that we should try and figure out ways that we can be, um, we can have some, sort, we have to reopen schools. We have to figure out a way. It was not met. People did not take it well. I, it was strange. I, I, I looked at educators and 
it somehow their positions about like no we have to shut down we have we it's not safe it's not safe i i just thought but this is i i don't understand we understand how detrimental it is for kids to be at home all day and especially with working class families and we've always said i remember being in so many staff meetings and workshops and pds professional developments where we had discussed prior to covid or we had said you know, the safest place for many kids has been at school. We, we know that. So I don't understand how their positions changed. So suddenly they've had amnesia or something. They've forgotten their positions. I don't know. And and so I would discuss some of these topics with in person with people. And I realized some people did agree with me, but then they would not say it. And so I became really upset as I'm upset now, I became really upset. And I started getting angry because I know that my nephew, for example, I'm seeing him wonderfully growing and I see it as a form of privilege for lack of a better word, not trying to enter identity politics here. So so I, I, I thought maybe we need to discuss this and I thought, okay, well, maybe it's, you know, I left it. It was not something we discussed. It was, yes, it was something we discussed, but it was not something I had organized. I just said, you know, I was just listening to people. And I don't know. I I thought, okay, well, it's going to reopen in January. Schools did not reopen in January. I, I was in communication with a lot of Latino families. At that point, my nephew is in kinder. And I was in communication with the families from his classroom and other and, and just in casual conversations that we were having, I people were struggling out everywhere. So, 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 why was then the narrative that was put out there that the people who wanted to reopen schools were only white families? That was the narrative. They there were many people that were saying that white families are the only ones pushing to go back to school. And you saw different groups emerge. And I can't, I'm not going to name some, some groups, but some groups began emerging in San Francisco. And I'm sure this happened across, because I also read some stuff that happened in other states. But in San Francisco, I, I, I was in communication with my friends in France, and they had said that schools had reopened for a period of time in the UK, they had reopened. And even in New York, they had also, we had discussed this with Adrian as well. One of the, one of the teachers that we had discussed this with, oh, I look like a hot mess, like it's just ugh, boogers and anyhow. So it was then that I, I began seeing that it's so, I know my my teacher friends are going to look at this and they're going to get angry with me. I can see them right now just getting so heated with me after saying this. But I'll say it the way that they'll say it. I say, I often say, teachers didn't want to go back. And they always say to me, and I'll say for those of you who are listening, because I know they'll be watching and they'll be after this, after me later on, and they'll be gossiping and room, making rumors about me later on. I'll say that what they say, we want to go back, but they always say that, but, right? But it's not safe. 
it's we're not ready. And they said, they said, we need PPE, we need testing, we need vaccines. Well, they got all of that. <laughs> Still, their position is like, oh, we don't want to go back. Uh, when eventually I'm fast forwarding too far. But so I started talking to Latino families and I and then from one Latino family, they told me to talk to this other Latino family that went to a neighboring school in the Mission District. And for people who don't know where the Mission District, it's a heavily populated area of Latino immigrants. And well, it's not being, it's gentrified and everything. But so one family connected me to one family and one family connected me to another family and one family. And I mean, I was listening I, and no one was telling me, go, go people. I was just, well, where, who, who else do you know that's going through this? And so I started creating a WhatsApp group because as people know, Latinos connect more on WhatsApp. And so I created this WhatsApp group and we started adding families and in messaging, we, everyone was sharing pictures and talking about, oh, please come here or, they were sharing their struggles. And that's how I met, that's how I met Latino families. And, 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 and when I brought this up with some teacher friends who are now in leadership positions, and I'm okay saying this. When I brought this up with some teacher friends who are now in leadership positions uh, in a very strong... In the union for UESF. Yeah. UESF. United Educators of San Francisco, which is the union of San Francisco, which is a very strong union. Not like strong, radical strong, well, that's debatable if they want to say that, but it's very influential for San Francisco politics. Mm -hmm. And I brought this up with my teacher friends who are now in leadership positions. And I said, you know, I, I want to share that I'm my community, the people I'm talking to, they're wanting to reopen schools. My teacher friend said, mm, that's, not what, that's not what we're hearing. I said, well, where are you hearing it from? I said, well, surveys show. Well, those surveys, the response rate is very low. And if yes, white families, the response rate is high. Yes, okay. But even with the low response rate, that low response rate, you had different variations of what they, they were answering the questions. So I also felt those questions were a bit, the way that they were framed wasn't fair. But, you know, I've worked in unified in schools for a very long time. The response rate for low-income Latino, Black and Brown communities, they, they don't respond to those surveys very well. And, and so I, I said, this is not matching up with what I'm hearing. You know, it's not matching up. I'm I went to the church in the Mission District where I spoke with some families. That's not what they're saying. I went to Everett Middle School, another heavily populated Latino area with a populated Latino population. They're not saying that. My community is not saying that. I went to other families from other neighboring mission schools, not at the schools, but met them. And they're not saying that. They all say, this isn't working. We don't know what to do. We can't take care of our kids. Our kids are being taken care of by grandmother or by siblings, sometimes being left with other kids. And I spoke with my friend who was a social worker. She knows if she's she can she'll she'll never say this out loud. I know her, but she she knows. She said to me, like abuse cases were rising, you know, a lot of things that were being sort of dismissed. And I remember being in a group chat with my teacher friends and sharing about suicide rates. And my teacher friends, it was like, 
well, COVID deaths or something. I thought, but but what about this death? Like, I it's I think COVID deaths, yes, it's scary, and yes, I don't deny that there's there's stuff that's happening. But what about uh, what about these deaths? And they would always say, if we go back to school, kids are going to cry from having their teacher dead. I don't want anyone's teacher to be dead. You know, I, that's exactly what my friend told me. She's a teacher. And she said to me, do you want teachers to die? And I said, no, of course I don't want teachers to die. I don't want anyone to die. We can figure out ways, though. I got COVID and I survived. The, the, rate, the, the death rate, mortality rate is not that high. The infection rates, yes, I, I, I know it's going, that happens, yes. But the death rate isn't high. People can look it up. I survived, like I'm willing to go back. Many families are willing to go back. And even I think we should do a, a shift in, in what we're doing. How do we handle this? How was our response should be different? Maybe people can go back, those who want to take those risks. I have teacher friends who said, I'm willing to go back. One of them, one of them, Andy, you know, she said, I'm willing to go back. I'm ready to go back and we should go back now. But other teachers, no, 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 no. And what I call them the loudest minority, the loudest minority were the most strongest voices opposing schools from reopening. And they got support from very popular, very strong organizations in San Francisco for us, for us to speak up even you know wasn't and when they released the new surveys you could see the response rate of my community of the latino community just even with the low response rate 70 percent of latino families were in favor of going going back and when they did reopen briefly for april our the mission schools were at 80 percent they were at they were they were at capacity everyone went back so the teachers got it wrong they misrepresented my community and that's what really made me upset, that they got it wrong and they'll never to this day, they'll never admit it, I know it. And if they're watching this, they're still not going to admit it. They'll never say they got it wrong. There are videos of them in rallies and caravans and everywhere saying Latinos don't want to go back and they misrepresented families. And that's really upsetting and they won't acknowledge it. They will never acknowledge it because to acknowledge it is to say that they did this wrong but they got it wrong. And my problem, my problem with, 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 with the leadership team and with the loudest minority and the teachers who spoke out and who were very loud is that they, my problem with them is that they didn't see, they, it's as, as one of the Latina mothers told me, they abandoned us. That's, that's what one of the mothers said. And, and, I, and I do believe that worker solidarity was not there. It was not there. That was that was that was looking out for one worker's interest, but we didn't look at we didn't look at the solidarity. So that really changed me, and what also changed me around, especially when I did, I had already issues with identity politics. We did an episode, but what really cemented my change with identity politics was when I said to one of my teacher friends who was white, I said, I said, I'm Latino. I'm a I'm, I'm like, I'm a brown person. And I'm telling you, my community, we want to go back. It's not just white families that want to go back. 
we want to go back. I'm telling you, as a Latino person, I can pull out all my Uno cards, all my identity cards. I can show you, this is what I'm saying we want. I know it. It's the LGBT youth that are at home who are being threatened by, of conversion therapy. It's the kids who don't can't communicate with their families because they're deaf. It's the Latino children and the Black kids who are in the hubs. We had the city open some hubs that are not part of the school district, but in real, they made up some, for people who don't know, they made this, um, this arrangement for kids who just really could not be at home in these centers, in these hubs that were run not even by edu educators. They were mostly run, the majority, by people who are inexperienced. What was the percentage that were in those hubs? Latinos, Blacks. And people were saying only whites wanted to go back. Such misrepresentation, so misrepresentation. And, and so, and to me, it's not about black or brown kids versus whites. And I think all the kids deserve to go back, but they were saying, they're the ones that were saying, oh, white families only want to go back. So I was really upset by that narrative because I said, no, it's not true. But because I didn't fit the ideology, I didn't, I didn't go along with the position that these, the loudest, what I'm calling the loudest minority of educators that said we shouldn't go back because I didn't fit in with that way of thinking. My skin, my Latino voice did not count. So it's like, you're not the right brown person I need. I really felt very dismissed. I felt very dismissed. And I realized then, Oh no, you're not an ally. This is not allyship because this is, you are then choosing which, who you want to pick out. You're looking at all these brown voices and you're saying this brown voice fits my narrative. This black person fits what I need to say. That is not allyship. And I ask, and for anyone watching this, I ask the, my, I ask my, my educator friends, I'm going to ask them a direct question. What does allyship mean? Allyship means that you only pick out the right brown voice, the only, the right black voice, because I'll tell you, the majority of us Latinos wanted to go back, but because we didn't fit that narrative, you picked out the Latino voice that does fit with that way of thinking. That is not eyelashship. And they screwed us over. And I'll say that like that. And I'm just gonna get lots of heat over it because I'll probably just take snap snippets of this episode and just take that and share it with their friends. That's fine. It doesn't matter to me anymore. And you know, that really made me angry. And I shared this with you, Andy, and I'm willing to go public on this. Why did it make me so angry? It made me angry because the left, like I said, the liberal and progressive left prides itself. The radical socialist left prides itself to be so woke, so enlightened, so I've got it together. I know what's right. I know the best politics. But, and this happened, this literally happened. But you're so woke, so enlightened. But when I speak and I was speaking for my community, you censored me. White educators censored me and said, I'm not talking about this issue with you anymore. And you're supposed to be so woke, so better than everyone else. 
but you censored me. I had an experience some time ago with my friend, my friend, my very close friend, my childhood best friend, where he said some very ignorant things to me when we were growing up. And I know he was joking and he's apologized since and everything. He said to me, I remember he said the words and he said some other hurtful things I'm not going into. And they were hurtful at the time. But when I brought them up as a, I said, you know, I want to say something like that it really hurt me. I said, you know, when we were growing up, I know that, you know, we grew up in a conservative community as in this town that I moved into for some time with you and la la la. You, you said these words and it really hurt me. My friend was not justifying it, was not interested in correcting it or mediating or, uh, or um, fix it or apologize for the incident because of, because of the identity politics, like, way of thinking and not because he was feeling white guilt or whatever no it wasn't because of that he apologized to me because our friendship like our, our relationship is a value is important my voice was important and he took me in consideration and he said you know what that was racist of me of saying that this is from someone who's supposed to be super ignorant someone who is supposed to be the deplorable someone who is like like rotten and disgusting and part of the hillbilly right and farm corn stock from you know the midwest who you know redneck hillbilly shit that they say and yet he said to me I shouldn't have said that. And I was stupid for saying that. And I didn't know what I was saying. I was like, you know, I didn't know many Mexicans. I didn't realize. And he apologized. And I wasn't in this identity politics. It was through this work, like worker to worker, this friendship that we had, this through our connection that he realized, like, I can't be saying stuff like this because this is my ally. This is my friend. This is my connection. This is who I'm working with. And we have differences but we also have similar views on like we want to fight the state from being super surveillance we have to work and fight that so we are in connection i can't say that to my fellow compañero my fellow com comrade like this is not right this isn't going to work for us so that happened right 2021 i'm speaking to a fellow activist a fellow comrade a socialist a liberal or progressive, whatever, it's like a woke person, an enlightened person, a well-read person, an educated person, someone who has not only a bachelor's degree, has also a master's degree. And, and I say, you know, you censored me. You, 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 you took, you, you're, not, you're not listening to this brown voice. I'm telling you, this is what my community is saying. And you say, You are the minority, which we weren't, but it was, you are not, the, you are the minority and dismissed me and censored me. It, you, and not only one teacher, it was many teachers who I spoke to. And you are this 
enlightened, understanding ally <laughs> to my community, <laughs> to the working class. Aren't you supposed to know better? And that was harder for me to understand and it hit me really hard. And I really got that moment. This isn't, no, the left is screwed up. And that's more racist than I thought it was. It's very, very divisive. And that was for me the very direct experience. And I still, even to this day, have talked to some of those teachers. And I recently went over to someone of those teachers' homes and we met up and stuff and they still won't understand it. That's fine. It will never be understood. It's fine. That the way that the thinking and it's many factors, but it is not is not getting there. And it's fine. It's fine. It won't it won't register. I have understood though. This has been very traumatizing, and it has been re-traumatizing. Going back to my Jehovah's Witness background, where I grew up with a community of people, where we all shared the same beliefs, we all shared the same ideology, the all same ideas. And I adopted this leftist, liberal, progressive sect, this other community, and being pushed, and now seen as a kook. I can't even post something on Facebook. Everyone is seeing me like I'm some mad person. They, you know, they don't think I'm rational. They don't think, like, what? I'm irrational because I'm posting something that we should look into. So now I'm seeing it. And so thanks to them, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I, I've now decided, you know, I'm not going to work with other conservatives. Yeah, I don't feel like I feel they are now more enlightened, actually. You know, I'm going to now. It's what I what happened to me was worse than being called. Now I'm going to work with these people because I'm going to work with other workers. I don't want to work with workers who don't even consider themselves to be workers who are in cahoots with the state or who or who see themselves so much better. And, in, you know, so it's fine. I said a lot and I hope that. It's a rant. If you all have some questions, you can ask me. I think you, you've kind of started to say it, but maybe could you touch on, Eduardo, what true solidarity would look like to you in this moment, maybe a little bit, wherever it's coming from politically? I think solidarity means confronting some very hard questions. It means being open like, if you look at how workers like me, I, even now I'm seeing myself, like, I'll just use myself an ex as an example. Now I'm seeing myself be, I I'm questioning how in solidarity I am with workers who I think I'm better than they are. So I, I think we're, I have to be able to listen to what they have to say. And that sometimes means some wacky stuff that they're saying, like this conspiracy things. So solidar solidarity means that I have to have an open mind, not necessarily that I'm going to accept what they're saying because I, don't st I still don't believe that there's a boogeyman under my bed, or I don't believe that the flat earth theory is. <laughs> but solidarity means, all right, what, what's going on here? Like, let's, let's figure this out and I have to sort out and I have to, that's what solidarity means. Like if I had this wacky idea about reopening the schools, 
what they had to show solidarity was, all right, well, let's examine this as workers. Let's look at this. We're going to have to really, they didn't. And so I, in the same way, I think solidarity means it for me, because I've learned from this experience, I'm going to have to look into some, I'm going to have to work with workers who are also have differences, who maybe do have some racist tendencies. And I'm going to have to really see, all right, well, as a worker, I'm going to have, I'm going to join them and whatever it is, whether it be the coal miners, whether it be whatever, but they're going to have differences. But that's, we have this worker solidarity. And through that, hopefully, right, we'll dismantle those racist ideas that they have. Okay, I'll ask one more and feel free. I feel like you've like been, I don't know, you've just been uh, really pouring your heart out here so i'm sure you're exhausted <laughs> and i hope you're gonna have time for like birthday cake or sleep <laughs> oh, or something yeah, tonight so i don't know i'll ask one more and then if you want it you can just we can table it if it if you don't feel like it yeah then. Sure. but one thing i wanted to ask about which kind of loops back around sure the beginning when you were talking about your your upbringing um and just your relationship to like religion I wanted to know kind of what the, how you see the relationship between a loss of faith in religion or even, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be conceptualized as like a, a loss of faith, maybe like a, a liberation from certain form, a certain form of like institutional accountability or however you want to think of it. Um, and loss of faith in institutions you know, so basically, what is the what? How do you see the relationship between faith and politics? And then also, or either or, what does faith have to do with revolution? I was I was uh, listening to I don't know if you guys ever listened to um Steve Poikinen on uh, Solo News Day, and he said oh, something I the other day. Yeah. 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 yeah, he said something the other day. I don't, he was being asked about sort of, you know, revolution and um, fighting this whole, whatever, COVID madness. And he said something that really struck me. He said, like, I, I don't really think we're going to achieve what we want to achieve long term without a little bit of, I think he said, like, woo or woo woohoo, um, which I thought was really interesting. I mean, I'm, I don't I don't practice any institutional uh, religion myself. But I find myself like growing increasingly spiritual. Uh, and I do see, I know like Allison talks about this as kind of a spiritual fight that we're in. People conceptualize it different ways. Um, but yeah, I was just kind of thinking about sort of um, the ways that a lot of us have kind of lost faith in the, whether it's institutions or religions or whatever um, that we've been so invested in over the years. But then I think, you know, there's something really like human and amazing about faith if you want to call it that, and those other other words, love or spirituality. But yeah, I'm just kind of curious, maybe that could be like a, a note to end on. Yeah. Um, well, I think that, <laughs> I think that, um, well, I think faith in general, any sort of spiritual uh, connection to the, the earth, the world, or the higher beings or higher power, I think that has always been a part of, um, human history, you know, we have very deep questions about the world, about ourselves, about the meaning of the life and death, and 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 I think that that's always going to be there with us. And 
I don't think that science can answer everything. I just don't think it can. And so I do think that for the longest time we have had uh, oral history and myths to explain some of these questions, to be able to fulfill some of the answers to these questions. Uh, it's it's sometimes even necessary, I think, for some people, or maybe even for atheists in some way, if, to have a connection to, maybe they will say no for atheists, but um, to have some form of connection to the spiritual realm and or to believe in something that is maybe a bit more acceptable, uh, such as knowing that we just have a connection to energy and energy is just something that like the particles of what makes our elect electrify our atoms what happens to that after death and where does it go and it goes back to the earth or whatever. And then there's all these. I, so I think it's all a part of it. I Now I'm beginning to think that um, I used to think that hopefully in the future we would eradicate all of that sort of thinking and that there would be nothing of that sort because that is backward thinking. Uh, but, but it does, it does, uh, being spiritual does give does give some flavor to life, I think. It gives a chance for us to be able to deal and cope sometimes with challenges, even when we have it together, I think. And I believe that it'll always be a part of our humanity. It's always going to be a part of it. I think we'll let go and shed or discard some myths. Uh, but I, I do think it has a place in our society. I don't know exactly how it will manifest and how exactly we should take it, but I do believe sometimes it does connect us to, for example, the earth and the meaning of what it means to to be stewards of the earth and and what it means to like we have just even when we're hike, hiking in certain places and we are in, in the possibility of wonder right and we are just wondering and that that in itself i think is a spiritual connection i don't know if i've answered your question but yeah yeah i do think that it has a place where i used to not think that at all so when you say looping back to my past I, if you were to ask me what five years ago i would have said no jessica it doesn't it doesn't that's backward thinking it doesn't belong in our future mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah I would have probably done the same thing, and I don't, I don't, I don't think that anymore. I'm an atheist, <laughs> but I, but I think faith is going to be necessary for revolution. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like um, I was thinking as you said those words, I was thinking of crowd surfing. You know, like people who are like, you know, playing music and they turn around and they don't see; they just fall backwards and they don't believe they're going to hit the ground and break their neck or whatever. Now, of course, you know, but I think of the the project we're on is sort of like that. I think it's like we're having, I believe that the revolutionary project is one of faith that we will be there for each other uh, if we're willing to put ourselves into a position of vulnerability. Um, and we will be in a position of vulnerability. Capitalism will make it, but we have to be vulnerable and honest with each other. Um, the vulnerability of capitalism is one that's trying to enslave us. The vulnerability to each other is one where we have the opportunity to build trust. And those are two different sorts of connections. And I think that's, that's, that's what I got out of listening to you, Eduardo. I, I've never been 
religious, but I have been in a cult. I mean, and it wasn't just say the ISO. I I was in the cult of not like liberal beliefs or even of believing that I needed an institution to tell me I was okay. And and that is what I think a lot of our folks are caught in. It's like they they need there needs to be an institutional stamp to say you're okay and what you believe is I will give you the authority to say that now. And I'll give you the confidence to say it. And that's for me what the flat earthers were both saying, you know what? We're out of that. You know, and I that's that's what that's what was meaningful to me about people like that is they're like, they, I don't need some institution telling me what to believe because I'll come up with my own idea about what it is. Even if I don't agree with them, I think there's something more revolutionary in that than than people who were continually looking for that institutional stamp and caught in that cult. And I, mm-hmm. I, I was caught in it. I don't know if but I don't know if it was, but it what and it has it has that element of arrogance to it that I think if you're caught in it, it catches you in that as well. And the more you get out of it, the more you get outside of that cult, I think, the more it it hopefully forces a humbling uh, and a leveling of saying, you know what, I have my ideas, you know, but I I need to be able to listen to somebody else and see what they think. Yeah. I wanted to add to that, that I, I do think now that a lot of my friends that think I'm a conspiracist now or an anti-vaxxer or whatever they think of me, I'm sorry, but I see them as conspiracists now. I, I do believe that there is, I, I just, the way that they're behaving, the way they criticize conspiracists and the way they criticize Trump supporters, let's say, whatever, I'm beginning to see them as you are, you're the one who's really caught up. Like you, something's going on. You want these lockdowns to continue forever. They, there's no reasoning with them anymore. And that's exactly the behavior that, that they are criticizing. They are adopting that. And I'm, I think that no offense to them if they're watching this, I doubt that many are going to, but they're going to take snippets and share with amongst their <laughs> And I just want to say that they, there is no reasoning with them. At this point, there's just no, no matter what statistic, no matter what you share, I share that UCSF, which is our regional hospital here that was taking charge of COVID, they were for the reopening of schools. And still, talk about science or whatever. They're so caught up, Andy. No matter if I said that, you would tell me this too, like, it doesn't matter if you say that. There's no science backing you need to say. And I said, oh, Andy, you don't know what I'm talking about do it my way (laughs) and I would tell them look UCSF the COVID response team is actually saying they back the reopening of schools and they no 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 it's like like oh no they they're doing that it's and that is a conspiracy of the left I'm beginning to see that they're they're far down deep I I do believe that they're not well. I just, they're not well. Yeah, I think I'm learning to have slowly, like, I guess, more more faith in my immune system, learning to have more faith in my mind, my ability to discern information for myself, my ability to judge people's character based on my relationship, my direct experience with them, not, you know, some label that's slapped on them from you know, an authority. So, yeah.
I think this was a really beautiful episode, Eduardo. I just wanted to oh. say before we close, and I really hope a lot of people listen. Yeah. <sighs> I, I I hope not. <laughs> I do hope not. We're going to have to, Jessica, this episode is going to have to get through one of the most brutal censors of all time, which is called Eduardo Abarca. Because he is going to want to edit the heck out of this damn thing. But I how am. Can we, how can we manufacture consent? <laughs> <laughs> I I want to add this last piece, which is something that we constantly talk about. What's left here, and this I do want to add, please. Um, this is the last piece. I'll just say. Over this journey, uh, this past COVID journey, I have realized that, you know. More and more so. I mean, I did know it before, but this has really cemented this COVID journey. I keep saying, what I have really understood is that in the left, it's very hard to have open discussions about other things. And this is why we created What's Left, because we're trying to discuss things that are unpopular or that may not be, that just challenges the mainstream left, right? That challenges, and, and I, and I, I'm not, I've lost friends. It's really sad. I have lost friends through this journey because they're not able to see my position, some of aspects of my positions and still be my friend. And I'm able to accept them for their positions. And recently there has been this scandal of of rumors about me and just slander and defamation about me from my community at my former work site. and that has been very hurtful. People talking behind my back, friends of mine that were that we've said, I love you. Like, I don't say I love you easily to just anybody. And I've said to these people, I love you. I, I have affection. I love you. And people have really showed their true colors through this. And it's very unfortunate that there is this division. And if you don't follow the mainstream, if you don't do what this is supposed, like, you are then ousted. You're now separated. I won't say that's true for everybody, but I'm willing to be friends with them. I'm, I'm willing to still, just like I'm willing to be friends with my former Jehovah's Witness community, but they don't want to be friends with me because their religion won't allow them to be friends with me, but I'm still available to be friends with them. And in the same way, I'm still open to having conversations with them. I'm still open to being, look, your positions are your positions and we're going to disagree. Andy and I have been we fought many times and we've disagreed many times on this episode. And that's why we record some of those heated debates because he and I, we're not in agreement with everything. And we hopefully, and sometimes it's very awkward and weird. And sometimes we get angry with each other, but we're still very close and we're friends. And that's not the position that a lot of people can take. I don't know what's going on, what's going to happen to our friendships long-term, but many people don't want to talk to me. That's fine. I had my position. And I'm going to stick with workers and I'm going to stick with the kids. I'm going to stick with the families. And that was my position. And I'm going to stick, you know, my, my attack really wasn't against teachers. I want to be clear. It wasn't against teachers. It's that they were working and operating in a way that is going to be detrimental to them. Ultimately, that's the way I see it because teachers are not actually, and I tried to tell this to families, they're actually not the problem here. What was the problem is Silicon Valley, as we have discussed in many episodes, and the surveillance state. All of this that's happening in the government, that's what's happening. But unfortunately, teachers, workers like them, like I I told Andy once when we were on the phone, like the police were working for the state. 
They're working in cahoots. They're working in accordance. They're working with the state. And as workers, that eventually is going to, it's going to ultimately be your ultimate destruction because you never trust the state. Never, never trust the state. So this is not, I'm not an anti-humanist union person. I am pro-union, but I'm for a union that is in solidarity with all workers, with all of the unions, and every worker gets counted. And not a union, not leadership, maybe I should say, not any leadership, I'm not talking about now or from whenever it was or in the future, I'm just talking in general. Any leadership should be skeptical of any state, any working with the state. You need to be independent, and I really am pro-worker. But that's all I'll say that. So it's unfortunate that one, there you can't have personal relationships with people because you have differences politically. And two, I want to be clear, I have it's never about the teachers and that they're the issue or the problem. It's their alignment with the state. That was the problem. It was their alignment. It was not teachers' fault. It's their alignment, many of their alignment. That that's all I want to be clear of those two. And that's it. And I'm done. Well, I'm, I think that's a good way to end. Uh, Jessica, did you have anything to say about that? Or do you disagree or something? No. Solidarity. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I definitely don't disagree with that last bit. Uh, so that does it for this week's episode. And I invite everyone to check out the, um, uh, an episode that we did with... Uh, Dr. Jessica, who teaches English literature, writing, and environmental humanities at the university level in Washington State. She has been teaching um, college students for eight years and holds a PhD in English. And she's also an active member of environmental and animal rights activist communities. And uh, we'll link to anything that you want to share with us, Jessica. Thank you for being here with us today. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you both. All right. What's Left is a weekly political podcast as channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnote.com. <clears throat> you can find past episodes to this podcast as channel there and connect with us. And I remind folks, uh, if you like anything you have heard here, if you think anything here was important for you to share, uh, Please uh, rate, review, uh, subscribe, uh, share this episode or any of your favorite episodes uh, and uh, subscribe to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Libri, Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, Libri, L-B-R-Y, uh, or YouTube and Telegram, which some of these places are still holding some of our episodes up there for now. So we hope that you jot down our information as we're probably going to be censored with this video as well. Este, if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, uh, contact us through our blog, such as Paul Hader, who contacted us. And um, there will also be the interview that we did, uh, quite, uh, some answered questions interviews on Dissident Voice, if I'm correct. Yes, Andy? Yeah. Great. Este, I'm Eduardo Barca with uh, co-host Andy Lipson. And thank you so much for having joined us, Jessica. Yeah, thank you, Jessica. Thanks. See you all next time. Ciao.